to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we continue our blessed study in regards to the Trinity. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. The great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. How many lords is he? Amen. Now turn to 1 John chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 7. Man, we must allow scripture to interpret scripture. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before your throne of grace today in great need of thee. Lord, we do ask you to quicken us by your Spirit. Grant us understanding and illumination, Lord, a hearing ear, a seeing eye. Lord, grant us faith to believe your word, that we would bow our knees and our minds and our hearts, allowing you to be God over our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a little review from what we have been discussing in regards to the the prologue of John's gospel that we have have broken down. And John chapter 1 is an essential chapter. In fact, the whole gospel of John is glorious. And liberal theologians hate the gospel of John. Because John, more than any of the other Gospels, sets forth the deity of the Son of God. And much theological controversy, it centers up right here regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this portion of Scripture answers perhaps the most important question ever posed. That being, who is Jesus Christ? We would declare that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the Father, who by virtue of His Sonship is the Word of God, which was made flesh, that the unseen and unseeable Father could be revealed unto us. And I've been making a statement much as we have been discussing the Trinity, and that is that we must believe in the Son as the Son. And you may well, what's the significance of that as the Son? Why am I emphasizing this qualifying truth? And it is because oneness heretics and other heretics will say that they believe that the Son of God is divine. But when you really press them, they don't truly believe that the Son as the Son is divine. And this is very important. They only
only believe that because the Son was indwelled by the Father who is divine, therefore the Son is divine. So when you begin to press them, you really find out they do not believe that the Son as the Son is God. Thus, the Son of God as the eternal Son of God is distinct from the Father and is of himself deity. And this is the unmistakable record that God has given of his Son. And John chapter 1 deals with the identity and the nature of the Son of God. As we learn, John 1 and 1. Oh, what power, what truth is set forth in these 17 words. Who can tell me what three truths are set forth in John 1-1-A, B, and C? John 1-1-A declares that, that the word is in the beginning, is eternal. John 1-1-B, and that word is also Personal, a distinct entity with the Father in fellowship. And John 1-1-C, and that word as to his nature is deity. Eternality, personality, and deity established here in John chapter 1. And last week we, we, we looked into the Greek a little bit in regards to the article that is not in front of theos. In John 1, 1 and C. And modalists will tell you, or Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, because that article is not in front of God, it means it's a God, a little God. And we learn that that is not correct at all. The reason the article is not there is because Logos is the subject of John 1, 1 and C. And Theos is describing the nature of the Logos. But here's something else. Throughout John chapter 1, in verse 6, 12, 13, and 18, God also appears without an article. And they don't have a problem with that being God himself. You see, we must allow the scripture to interpret the scripture. Also in 1 Corinthians 5 and 19, where it says, And God was in Christ reconciling the world. If you take the Jehovah's Witness Greek expounding, that would say a God little was in Christ reconciling the world. You see how foolish it is when we take in the corpus of the scripture. So this is very important. John 1 is a modalist nightmare. Verse 14 told us that the word was made flesh. That word that is eternal, that is personal, that is deity, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And finally we come to verse 18, which is the bookend, which says that no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And what is God doing for us? This scripture, verse 18, coupled with verse 14, interprets John 1 and 1 in identifying the word and identifying the God that the word was with. If you just follow it out, it interprets itself. Who was the word that was with the father? It was the son. 
The Word that was made flesh. Who is the God that the Word was with? It is the Father. And verse 18 just bears it all out as it declares, No man has seen God, the Father, at any time. But the only begotten Son, the eternal Word of God, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Thus, we solve the great mystery, how men can see God. But yet, it's not be a contradiction that no man has seen God. How is that? It's because the Son has exegeted or revealed the unseen and unseeable Father unto us. A few general truths regarding the Trinity. And I cannot stress this enough. I hope that you all become foaming at the mouth dogmatic, orthodox, biblical Trinitarians. Amen. This is a hill to die on. Yes, sir. As I stated last week, the Bible never commands us to believe in God's existence because that's obvious. The Scripture rather commands us to make sure that the God we believe in is the right God. That is why the first commandment is not, thou shalt not be an atheist, but thou shalt have no other God. Do you see that? That was revolutionary to me. If God has commanded all men that they are not to have a false God, then that presupposes that all men can know the true God and no man has an excuse for not knowing the true God. You understand that? It doesn't matter if your father was Cyclone Jones. You hear me? You don't have an excuse to believe oneness because that's a perversion of the true God. Amen. Secondly, Trinitarian monotheism is the Christian distinctive. You see, there are other monotheistic religions on the earth. Judaism, Islam. But Christianity is different from every other because we are Trinitarian, monotheistic. That is the distinctive. It's the God that we serve and worship. And as I told you, this is key right here. Monotheism neither necessitates nor proves Unitarianism. It's true that God is one. But that doesn't necessitate that he is one person. Furthermore, Trinitarianism neither negates nor contradicts monotheism. Do you see that? Furthermore, all charges that we are polytheistic because we believe in the Trinity are bogus. Now, the Trinity... I believe is perhaps the most immense of all doctrines because it deals not with what God has done, but with who God is. I ask you a question this morning. Can anyone be saved apart from a revelation of who God is? No. How has God revealed himself to us? Through his son. How do we receive personally a revelation of the son? By the Spirit. Very good. So if the Spirit reveals God to us via the Son, is the Spirit going to present a Unitarian or a Trinitarian God unto us? 
pretty, pretty obvious. The Spirit's not going to get it wrong. You see that? And the only way we can know Him is by the Spirit. So if the Spirit has indeed revealed God to you, He's going to reveal the right one. Don't you agree? You see, it's not as long as someone's brought up in a Trinitarian church and they believe the Trinity, they're saved. There's some of you children in here. You believe the Trinity. You better believe it. Amen. (laughs) But you're not right with God, are you? And likewise, just because somebody's brought up in a oneness church, that doesn't mean they're necessarily damned. You see, it's the same deal with the, the, the heathen in deepest dark Africa. They're not damned because of a lack of light, but because of a rejection of the light that they have. That's what unbelief is. So I'm not necessarily saying that everybody that's born again can give me a, a treatise on the ontological trinity and break it all down. But here's the deal. If you sit somebody down that's born again and you begin to reveal to them the truth of the Trinity as set forth in the Scriptures, they're going to say, yay and amen. Because all those that are of God will hear the Word of God. Just like you children. You don't know everything your parents expect you to do. But when your parents come to you and say, that's not what I want, the way you respond exposes the condition of your heart. You see that? And when you get somebody that's really born again, amen, Cyclone Jones may have been their father, but when you get out the word of God, they're going to hear his voice, guaranteed. Amen. Amen. To believe on the name of the Son of God is to believe in the propitious sacrifice of the divine and thus immutable and eternal Son of God. And this truth of necessity presupposes the Trinity. Therefore, I believe it is impossible to deny the Trinity and believe on the Son as the Son. Because the deity of the Son necessitates His actual eternal relationship with the Father. And if He's divine, then He's also immutable. So if he is the son now, he's always been the son. Do you see that? That's why all of these truths are interconnected. That's why the Bible says, Whoso denieth the son, the same hath not the father. Notice it doesn't say, Whoso denieth the father, the same hath not the son. Because also, Jehovah's Witness, they'll declare the father oneness. They'll declare the, that's not where the problem is. The problem is with the son. And he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. But he that believeth not hath made God a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Therefore we learn, it is our view of and relationship with the Son which determines our standing with the Father. Amen. Now I just realized this this morning. There is a presuppositional argument to Trinitarianism. And I shared a little bit of this with you last week, but let me clarify it. And here it is. If modalism is true, then it's false. Therefore, it's false. You got it? There it is right there. Let's unpack that a little bit. In other words, if God is Unitarian, one person then the modalist narrative or story about this God is a complete flop. 
Because modalism is an utter failure to represent God rightly if he's just one. You see, according to modalism, God is unipersonal, which means he is one being comprised of one person. Therefore, the modalist God has no interpersonal fellowship with himself. That's their God. Now, the Unitarian God, as they say, has revealed himself in the incarnate Son. However, if God, in order to reveal himself, became something other than what he really is, then he's failed because he hasn't revealed himself. So according to oneness modalists, God is in reality in a non-interpersonal being. But if the modalistic Jesus was the manifestation of who God is, then God is interpersonal because modalistic Jesus was interpersonal. You see, modalists or oneness believe Jesus was the human son and the divine father existing in one person. And the human nature had fellowship with the divine nature. You see, that's interpersonal. You see that? And in Jesus, who was a representation of God, the human nature prayed to the divine nature, making Jesus interpersonal. But according to oneness theology, that interpersonal fellowship between the Father and the Son is precisely the thing that he's not. So such a revelation by nature, such a revelation by its nature cannot be true. Therefore, just like empiricism, You see, empiricism is self-refuting. Because if empiricism is true, then empiricism is false. Well, what does empiricism say? Empiricism says, we can only know what we learn by our senses. But nobody can know by their senses that we can only know what we learn by our senses. Therefore, if empiricism is true, we can't know it's true. Likewise, if modalism is true, it's false. Do you see that? Just like every other error, modalism is inherently contradictory and thus self-refuting. Now, as we've learned, the term Trinity is not set forth in the Scriptures as far as giving us a exact, precise, succinct definition. But nevertheless, like many other things, it is clearly declared via precept, principle, and pattern. In fact, as B.B. Warfield said, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings unto it nothing that was not there before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not fully revealed in the Old Testament. But the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there almost comes into view. Thus the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it. But only perfected, extended, enlarged, and fully illuminated. You see... I don't believe a man could fully understand the Trinity with the text of the Old Testament. But there is prophetic hints all 
over the place. But once somebody receives the full revelation of God, you can then go back with that candle and you can understand and see the Trinity all over the place. So although it is not succinctly and exactly defined in the scriptures, there are three foundational pillars which establish this essential doctrine. And these pillars are set forth in our definition of the Trinity, which states thus, within the one being that is God, there exist three co-equal persons who share that being, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What are the three pillars? Number one, absolute monotheism. There is one God and it is Yahweh. But the second pillar is this. There are three distinct persons that the Bible calls Yahweh. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. And then the final pillar is this. Those three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. And if those three truths are true, which they are, then the Trinity is true as well. First notice, within the one being that is called God, the first foundational pillar of the doctrine of the Trinity is absolute monotheism. And that is established in the great Shema of Israel. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is one of the most important, significant, defining scriptures in all the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. As it defines God. It says, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God is one Lord. Now, God is one indeed. Just hold your place right there. We do not dispute the biblical oneness of God. But what exactly was the Holy Ghost through Moses seeking to communicate when he says that the Lord our God is one Lord? As we have seen, We must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. The purpose of this statement, I believe, was to assert the deity and authority of one divine being, not to provide a psychoanalysis of God's inner being. And that's what modalistic Unitarianism declares. That, that this statement right here, God is giving us. He, God, God is, is laying down on the couch here. And, and Moses is giving us a psychoanalysis of the intricacies of God's inner being. That's what they believe. You see, this verse in Deuteronomy, it is not an ontological statement regarding the nature of God's being, seeking to reveal to us that God is one person or Unitarian. But rather it's a declaration that the one true God alone is to be worshipped and served. You see, the Shema is primarily a statement of monotheism, not Unitarianism. And this is borne out by the Scriptures. 
You know, the repeated admonition to Israel was not, Israel, be sure that you believe that God is unipersonal. Israel, you got to be careful out there. There's a bunch of Hivites and Perizzites and some Binites and some Trinitites as well. You better be watching out, Israel, because them dark Trinitites... They want to get you to believe that God is tri-personal. And so Israel, I'm going to help you out here. You, you, you know that God is unipersonal. Was that the emphasis of the Old Testament there? <laughs> is that what you see through the rest? Is that consistent with the testimony of scripture? No. The first commandment was not, thou shalt not believe that God is not one person. That was not it, was it? What was it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, the infamous, the emphasis of the Shema was in accordance with the corpus of the scripture. And that em- emphasis was that Israel was to remember there's only one true God and they were to have no other gods before him. Now the Shema beautifully mirrors the first commandment. And this is throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 4 and 35. Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Isaiah 43 and 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. A great scripture for Mormons right there. But also, it's ironic here that the very scripture the Jehovah's Witnesses use as their foundational scripture is a scripture which, a scripture which proves the deity of Christ. Because Christ quoted this when he says, except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. If you look at the Shema, as you read it, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then he speaks about teaching these things diligently to our children. And he goes down to verse 13. He says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods. Of the gods of the people which are round about you, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God. You see that? The Shema interprets what it means. Now, we must remember the context. Israel is surrounded by nations who believed in multiple warring deities. And Moses was thus declaring, God is the one true God. Furthermore, Paul quotes the monotheistic Shema as a Trinitarian creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn there. I want you to see this. Paul here is quoting from the Shema. Here in the New Testament. And as I said, we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So how does Paul interpret the great Shema in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Look here in verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, 
we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God. Here's the Shema. Who is that one God? The Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Do you see that? Paul, in the New Testament, gives us further illumination as he quotes the Shema and declares the true essence of the oneness of God, including the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father. But even in this Old Testament statement regarding the one true God, we see plurality. Now, the Shema, this is ground zero. For the, 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 the Unitarian. This is, yeah. How many gods to say right there? How many? How many? How many? One God. One God. One God. Can you count? You understand English? How many God? One God. One God. It says right there. Just one God. That's how they go right there. One God. Just one God. But what is the Hebrew word that the Holy Ghost uses for one? If you were to read the Shema in Hebrew, it would say this. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ehad. Ehad. When I was in Russia there, there was a letter. Funny looking letter and it was pronounced. And when you're in Russia, you learn to eat a lot of chleb. Chleb and masla. That's bread. Because they got a lot of pachunka and lard cubes and other things. So I ate a lot of chleb, okay? And that word ahad is kind of like chleb. And that word ahad has a very specific meaning. Because it says the Lord our God is ahad, is one. This particular word, which the Spirit of God uses for one here, means a united one. This is the same word used for one in Genesis 2 and 24 regarding a man and a woman that are married. It says, and the two shall become one. Amen? Brother Wesley and Sister Evangeline were married. Amen? Are they two or one? And two. They're both. You see that? But do you see that oneness is a compound oneness? It's like, give me one cluster of grapes. Amen. How many grapes? Many grapes. But it's one, a high. Do you see that? When it says there in Genesis chapter 11, it says the people have become one. The same word, a hod. It's a compound oneness. This is the word that was used. And in each of these verses, we see the idea of separate persons viewed as a unified one. However, this unification 
does not mean that they physically unite into one being. For the individuals still retain their personal identity and distinct personage. It's also worthy to note that in the Hebrew language, there's another word for one that the Holy Ghost could have inspired Moses to use. And that is the word Yahid. What does Yahid mean? It is a word which means one and only one. And it speaks of a solitary and indivisible one as opposed to the compound oneness of a hod. Do you see that? God inspired Moses to use a hod and not Yahid. He could have used Yahid. And if God was indeed one, unipersonal, just like it says right there in the Bible, then Moses surely would have used the right word. Therefore, we declare that God is indeed one God. But the question is this. How does the Bible define and expound upon this truth of God's oneness? And this is what the modalist does. This is what every heretic does. Instead of allowing all the scriptures to speak for themselves and fully define and exegete God's biblical oneness as revealed in his complex unity, modalists instead begin with a false assumption regarding the biblical truth of monotheism. And what is that assumption? They assume that monotheism necessitates Unitarianism. It doesn't, but they assume it does. And as one man said, the madman reasons rightly, but from a wrong starting point. This is what oneness people do. Because of a false, humanistic, unbiblical presupposition that monotheism demands that God be one person, they then take that presupposition and unnaturally impose it upon the rest of the scriptures. Instead of allowing God, through his word, to progressively reveal himself as he truly is. They then build upon this partially true but false foundation and unnaturally impose their presupposition on the rest of the scriptures to their theological and soteriological demise. This is what is called eisegesis. But whenever one becomes committed to his unbiblical presuppositions and is thus unwilling To allow God to be God. And this is, we're going to get more into this next week. The damning sin of man is unbelief, which is nothing other than rebellion. And men that are unbelievers, God declares it in his word plainly. But you know what they say? I don't believe that. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. That's nothing but unbelief. That's what unbelief is. 
God said it, but hey, I know better and I don't believe it like you said it, God. And mama and daddy, by the way, I don't believe you're speaking for God as you apply it to me. That's unbelief. You say, I'm different. I'm the exception. You're not really talking. I don't believe that God's really talking through you to me, pastor. I don't believe that's for me. It's unbelief. And the Bible clearly sets forth God as triune. But men say, nope, I refuse to believe it. Because I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. The reason is, is because they're their own God. And they've exalted their own intellect above the word of God. And this is how people get deceived. They latch on to an unbiblical, humanistic, self-serving presupposition. And then they interpret everything else in regards to that presupposition. And they insulate themselves from ever believing the truth that would make them free. Take the antinomian, for example. He's presuppositionally committed to himself. He wants to be God and he just wants to go to heaven one day. Therefore, it is necessary that once saved, always saved be true, and I can continue in sin. You see, it's not that they go to the scriptures, oh, oh God, just please reveal your truth to me, and they come up with once saved, always saved, and, and I've got to sin every day and fall word and teal. No. They start with a false priest. They love themselves. They want to be Lord over. They don't want to give up their sin. Therefore, the Bible must declare once saved, always saved. And I can continue to live in sin. That's why they go to Hebrews chapter 6. I mean, Paul, what he's dealing with here is somebody. He's wanting to let us know this individual was saved. I mean, five, they tasted of the heavenly gift. We're made partakers of the powers of the world to come. They received enlightenment. I mean, fire. This individual was saved. And what he's saying is, you better beware because you could really be saved and fall away. But they say, no, he couldn't have been saved. No way. No way he couldn't have been saved. No. But then they'll go to Romans chapter seven. <laughs> and they got one little snatch there. I bear witness of the law of God according to my mind. He must have been saved. I mean, it doesn't matter that he's he's shackled and chained, living in a dungeon. The thing he wants to do, he can't do. But I, he's got an intellectual witness that, that the law of God is right. He's got to be a Christian. He, why so inconsistent? It's because they've got a presupposition that they're trying to protect. And here's the deal. If Romans, if Hebrews chapter 6 is not a Christian, then they just lost their beloved once saved, always saved. And if Romans chapter 7 is not a Christian, then they can't live in sin and still be right with God. So they're interpreting the scriptures, not honestly, but in order to suit their own agenda. No different with the Calvinists. You see, whenever you embrace 
bad presuppositions, then you're going to have to become the butcher of Baghdad as you try to make sense of the Bible. You see, the Cal- Calvinism is not biblical. It is based upon a humanistic philosophical presupposition. But if you're going to be a consistent Calvinist, then Jesus didn't die for everybody. Therefore, <laughs> you're going to have to go to this book and you're going to have to become dishonest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth will have, have eternal life. Oh, no, 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 no. He didn't die. No, no, don't, no, don't really mean that. Not because they're honest with the scriptures, because they're being faithful to their presupposition. You see that? That's why you, you go to First John chapter 2. Well, what does that say in the Bible? It says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you're a consistent Calvinist, you know what that really says? And he is the propitiation for the elect sins. And not only for the elect sins, but also for the sins of all the elect. It's nonsense, isn't it? No different with oneness. You see, once you embrace this perversion of God, then you're going to have to turn Jesus into some kind of a schizophrenic ventriloquist that just went around muttering and talking to himself. And You're going to have to butcher the Bible. You understand? You're going to have to become dishonest with the Scriptures. As it says in Acts 10 and 38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. Isn't that beautiful? God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost. The Trinity. But if you're a modalist, you know what that says in the, in the new modalistic translation? How Jesus anointed Jesus with Jesus. Who went about doing good for Jesus was with him. You see, that's it right there. But when an individual is truly born again, oh yes, sir. You know, you know the, the, the primary attribute? Submission to the authority of the throne of God manifested practically by submission to the word of God as divine and applied by their earthly authority. There it is right there. That's Christianity. And all those that have that spirit right there, they've also got S-T-P. Amen. S-T-P. You know what that is. Brother Kevin told me it's a little additive you can add to your motor oil to keep up the viscosity and to keep everything running smoothly. Amen. You know what that STP is that you'd better have as an additive there to keep that engine? Sola Scriptura. Toda Scriptura. And the perspicuity of the Scriptures. Amen. 
I believe the Bible. I believe the scripture is my standard. The scripture defines and speaks to all things. And everything I need is in that scripture. But I don't just believe scripture alone. I believe total. All of scripture. And I'm not just going to isolate some little verse over here and take that as my proof text and then pervert everything. No, sir. Total scriptura. I believe all of it as rightly interpreted and relevantly applied to me. And I got a little P in there as well. Perspicuity. Amen. I don't need some guru to follow me around. Amen. I don't need some so-called scientist to tell me what a day is. Amen. I believe the way that he wrote it was in a way that I can, even such as I and you can understand it. And I dare not tell him, no, Lord, that don't really mean that. Because, Lord, you know that that's impossible. Lord, you know that no man can really live free from sin. Therefore, I don't believe that you command me to live free from sin. Lord, don't you know that I'm, I'm a little different from other people? Surely, you can't expect me to lose my life and be assimilated into a body of believers. I just don't believe that you really demand that I would lose my life and submit myself under my authority. I just don't believe that's for me, Lord. I mean, come on, Lord. You expect us to go into all the world and scream at people? I don't believe that's the best way to do it, Jesus. That's not reasonable, that's not loving, that's not wise, and that's not effective. I believe there's a better way. That's unbelief. You see, it's it's also plain. No problems with anybody understanding what it's saying. They just don't believe it because they don't like it. And they don't like it because it demands that they lose their life. And imagine this. Allow God to really be God. There it is right there. And that's why people reject the Trinity. Not some intellectual deficiency. Not some curse passed down from great-great-grandpa Cyclone Jones. They won't allow God to be God and believe what he has said. And they hear that voice of the devil. Had God really said that? That's all it is. Amen. Let's stand here this morning. Amen. Is the Trinity a mystery? Absolutely. Do I fully comprehend it? Absolutely not. But he's my Lord. And I hear his voice. And I see the truth thereof in this book right here. Therefore, I bow my knee. I'm a believer. Amen. And I trust you are as well. Hallelujah. Oh, God, we thank you, Lord.
Lord, for who you are, you indeed, you are worthy, you are beautiful, you are altogether lovely, your ways are right. Oh God, let none of us justify ourselves and condemn you and your word and your ways. Oh Lord, that we would each tremble at thy word. Allowing you to be God, bowing our knee joyfully unto thy truth. We trust you, thank you to do it, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. We'll take a short break and come back for church.